0: So I guess we can just get into it and see where it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Hello, and welcome to season two, episode 10 of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee with Dr. Justin Winzenberg and me, Stephen Jones. Today, our guest is Marcus Stipsilas. But first, Justin and I talk about last week's attempted insurrection in the Capitol. As always, you can find us at profsinrooms.com. So, okay. So like the last time that we talked, it was before Christmas, right? It was, um, yeah, Yeah. a little bit's happened since then. (laughs) I, I I just got to say like, I was, so Monday and Tuesday this last week, I was super tense because I felt like something was going to happen. And I just, I just, I was trying to work Mm. on different things. I just kept getting just really anxious, which is unusual for me. And then Wednesday, something happened. And I, for some reason, felt really at peace on Wednesday because I think it finally, it felt like the storm finally broke. You know, it's like, okay. That's something that happened just,
1: just so that our listeners are clear. You're referring to the events in Washington, D.C., right?
0: <laughs> I am. I am. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the epiphany day insurrection. So this is interesting that you you anticipated, you know, that something
1: was coming and sure enough, you know, Wednesday hits and 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 all, all of the events in the Capitol happen. It was a little bit opposite for me. I wasn't anticipating anything, not out of ignorance, but just, you know, we were kind of going about our day and it was interesting because it's like all of a sudden I hear from my wife who, you know, works in the governor's office here in the in the uh in the state and she says you know she's hearing from people in the office that something's happening in washington dc and i'm like what Mm -hmm. you know i kind of just brush it off right sure enough i'm like uh i started checking the news i'm like i better i better turn the tv on (laughs) and i turn the tv on and i realized very quickly oh this is actually uh, something bigger than i i think i had anticipated when i initially heard about it so
0: yeah yeah i think so so i thought as we were talking about today and how we talk about this like I think we'll skip our normal interest stuff. And I like, as you're reflecting, you know, so as, as professor of new Testament, what like, yeah. What do you see?
1: I mean, it's, it's complicated in a lot of ways um, because I, I don't really know the ins and outs of politics very well. Although uh, there, there's been one angle of the conversation that has been interesting to me in light of my PhD work, and that is, you know, there have been a lot of accusations against the president of sedition, of stirring up insurrection, um, treason, things like that. I mm-hmm. um, even, mm-hmm. even got a, a, a text message from, from a family member saying... Trump just committed treason. I can't believe it. You know, And I don't know all of the technical definitions of this in terms of American law. So that's not something I can really play ball in in terms of my area of, it, of knowledge. Um, but I, I happen to spend a good amount of time in my dissertation kind of looking at what constitutes subversion and how do you subvert mm-hmm. um, ideologies and how do you subvert political uh, circumstances and and empires and things like that and and so right. uh, coming at it from that angle I thought this was actually quite interesting because there was a lot of talk about what the president said and didn't say and whether that counts as sedition or, in, or you know or inciting insurrection and things like that and that, that to me was very interesting because that. My, my dissertation very much so focused on how language can be used right. Right, in order to the challenge what are words doing. Exactly. What are words doing and how can you use words to challenge ideologies and to basically provide reversals and, and subvert you know, various forms? forms of ideologies. And in that, I I did see some of that happening, whether that counts as sedition or insurrection or whatnot, I'm I'm not sure in terms of American law. Although it was interesting, and I, I did see just some people throwing up on Twitter and whatnot, some of the textbook definitions Mm. of sedition and whatnot and in some ways it was slightly different than i think i'd anticipated in other ways i could see how some of those accusations were maybe brought out um but but okay so when it when it comes this idea of sedition and insurrection one, one thing that was interesting to me from my area of study within the roman empire was you know and maybe this is so i know i'm gonna have listeners maybe who disagree with me on this but but if what happened counts as a sort of insurrection you said you called it the epiphany day insurrection <laughs> right right <laughs> if it counts as insurrection i i i got this slight sentiment internally that it was I don't want to be dismissive of the events whatsoever. Four people have died. You know, what it means and what it counts as in terms of the American political system is significant. But I did think a little bit that as an insurrection, it wasn't a very potent one. <laughs> um, I mean, in some ways, people, you know, they were storming the Capitol, they were breaking windows, and we don't know what would have happened, I guess, had they gotten into the Senate chambers and while people were in there fully so i don't want to be fully dismissive but in studying some insurrections that happened like within the roman empire i thought to myself well a bunch of people taking podiums and sitting in nancy pelosi's office and whatnot as disturbing as that is for lots of reasons i'm not sure in terms of world history that it's one of the more potent insurrections that we've seen so
0: (laughs) so here's what's interesting to me and so this is uh you know partly from a the political science perspective, and partly from just thinking about things from the constructivist perspective, like I actually think it was way worse than we think it was because the, these institutions of democracy are so incredibly fragile because they only work with, we act like they work. And when we stop acting like they work, they stop working because they're made up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, yeah, there have been, I don't know. I'm thinking of a of a coup that was that seemed almost accidental where the the people took over and suddenly they were in charge and they're like, "Oh shoot, what do we do now?" because like that actually happens, yeah. <laughs> you know. Like I I think we were much closer to something very significant happening out of that event than it felt like like what it felt like was, Oh, you know, here's these rabble rousers and they're there, they're, you yeah. know, they're causing mischief or whatever. And and then they leave. Right. Cause that's kind of, I don't know that that's an easy way to package it, but that's not really what happened. What, re- what happened was that government, the function of government and the people who represent the people were threatened successfully. Right. Like, they actually got into the space where the people were and there have been times in history where that's happened. And then all of those people have died. Yeah. Right. Like the people who were, who were the government. And I don't think that we're nearly as insulated from that as we feel like we are. And, and so part of that is, you know, the fragility of, of institutions Our institutions are so dependent on our continued construction of them yeah that when you break that wall i i look at that as being a, a tremendously vulnerable space and i i suspect that it has revealed a vulnerability and and i don't necessarily mean the the security you know yep. like i'm sure that they'll harden the capital mm-hmm. and all that further but but i think it it reveals a yeah a vulnerability an institutional vulnerability that could certainly be exploited Uh, in the future. Yeah, I I definitely see that. That's, there's no doubt. And again, I'm I'm not,
1: I want to be cautious to not speak about things that don't, fully know about because there's a lot of things going on politically and within the area of like just political science and political theory that i i've heard about but i i can't really speak on but some of what you're saying i think i I do resonate with um the fragility in some ways with the whole system if anything i I had a sentiment even though I, i felt like in terms of world history it wasn't it wasn't the most potent insurrection i've ever seen i still did feel in the same sense that it did reveal that in any way that america is exceptional if people want to use that term, we have something that was exposed, I think, a few days ago that, that most definitely uh, has been brought to light in a way that I think that is extremely revealing. I mean, I I don't know fully what this means. And I think I was also a little disturbed by some of the remarks made by our incoming president, by Joe Biden, when he was basically saying, This isn't America. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I kind of like, We're better than this sort of mindset. And I, and I thought to myself, That's very troubling to me that an incoming president is basically brushing this off as the work of, you know, some rabble rousers, like you said, mm-hmm. and not really taking into consideration that, you know, 70 million people in our country voted for Donald Trump and the 100,000 people that were there um, at the rally. In DC, probably only represent a fraction of people who would have been there otherwise if it weren't for COVID and, and whatnot. And I'm and what I mean by that is that there are Seventy million people, at least in the country, who who don't think Joe Biden is their president. I don't
0: know. I don't know if everybody who voted for Trump thinks that.
1: No. Okay. I'm sorry. I, I don't. I don't mean that they. I should clarify. They. They don't. They, I'm not saying that they mean that they don't think that Biden won the election. What I'm meaning is that they don't think that Biden represents their um their values and what sure, they their vision what they want to accomplish. Yeah, for America. That's what I mean. Yeah. Um. And, and so I think it's a little bit to to say that 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 the sentiments that were being expressed there were just these few rabble-rousers i think mm-hmm. is extremely naive on the part of the incoming president and i thought to myself like are we going to have someone who can open their eyes up to the divisiveness that actually exists in the country and not just be dismissive of it but try to handle it because he you know throughout his campaign was saying things like you know i'm 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 the president for, if i get elected i'll be the president of all the people or mm-hmm. you know the whole american people not just democrats um but i'm i'm not I'm not sure. I'm a little skeptical, to be honest, that he's going to be capable of doing that when he's making statements that, well, this isn't America. Well, it, it is America, right? In some ways, this is where we're at in America. Right. And if you can't acknowledge that the sentiments that were being expressed on, you know, on Wednesday are actually a, a
0: powerful sentiment in many people across the country, then how are you going to be their president? Right. Yeah. It was interesting. Mark Charles, who was our guest, uh, last, last season was talking about He was, he was commenting about these different responses and, you know, this question of like, how do we build shared memory? And yeah, I think how we move forward from this event will be important. Part of the memory that I think we have to wrestle with is, you know, the, the very overt linking of Christianity, uh, with the events of, of last Wednesday. Also, uh, how do you think about that uh, as a New Mate, Testament? I,
1: I was disturbed by some of what I saw. Some of the the biblical passages that people were holding up, the crosses that were brought there, um, and somehow that there were crosses being held and nooses is being hung. Did you see there was a noose? I was, did. Yeah. To me, that's so deeply troubling and disturbing. That if 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 there are people who believe that Biden didn't win the presidency and that this is the resort they should take, we could discuss those sentiments. If they somehow think they're being fueled by an affiliation with Jesus, that means that Jesus would want them to do such a thing. That that's deeply troubling to me. I, I in all the work that I've done in my area of New Testament studies, and all the ways that I've seen that the New Testament does in many ways, challenge Roman imperial ideology that makes claims that were transgressing, I think, what it should have been making. I don't see any places where Jesus encouraged any sense of violence, any sense of uprising. Um, in fact, it's quite the opposite. So I find myself in this space where I, I, I can sympathize with those who who, if they think that the ideologies that are happening in their country are somehow challenging the things that are only reserved for Jesus, I have some room for that. But then to think that the means by which you go about this and the, and the fact that there have been this association with Christian nationalism to me it was, was deeply troubling.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things that this continues to affirm for me, it, so I, I saw from many, so from many white Christians, I saw expressions of shock. Yeah. And from many Christians of color in the US, I saw expressions of y'all, we told you. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think what it reminds me of is this, this reality that we, I mean, it's what we've been talking about. We, we've been talking about this off and on through the whole podcast, but this, this question of the eschatologies that we have, yeah. the question of our vision of what is the church, who is the church? What does Christianity mean? Right? Like these are deep questions that have very practical consequence. And I think, uh, I mean, even in our conversation with Marcus today talking about what does it mean to be part of a, you know, to be part of a country where you're in the minority as a Christian, like that is, that is a conversation we need to have because we have so wedded Christianity being okay to Christianity, having political power. And I, I, that is such an unnecessary condition Biblically, right? Like it—it it really feels like actually historically, when Christianity has had political power, the church has had major problems, and you know the church suffers often without political power. So the—the the appeal of the political power is certainly understandable, but I don't think it's a good goal. And I think that part of our issue. So, like I was talking about, you know, Christians of color saying, like, you know, hey, we were warning you. I, I think part of this issue is. Because we don't have a healthy relationship, you know, w- with the whole church, and <laughs> for reasons that are connected to ha- why all this happened, like, but we because we don't have a healthy relationship, we're not imagining our our prophetic imagination is weak, our ecclesial imagination is weak, um, as the white church in America.
1: Yeah, and I think that there is this sentiment along among a lot of Christians that if our guy, whoever it is, and it's been guys so far, but if our guy doesn't win, that somehow, and we, we talked about this before, that somehow God's power... <laughs> In our country and in the world is is being threatened. That's just so silly. That's a, that's, that's a troubling silly. theological idea for me. Um, and I think that that might be some of the sentiment. Now, I don't know, uh, you know, everybody who was there at the Capitol, but those who I think who were motivated by whatever extent by their Christian thinking. Yeah, I think they're coming at it maybe from a theological framework that's that's very troubling to me. And that and that is that sense of that somehow God is being threatened. I also think it's a little short-sighted to believe that, like, you know, if we can get our president for four more years, everything's going to be fine. And this gets back to eschatologies, and it gets back to soteriologies, we talked about before, views of where our hope is, and how things will be made better, and how we will be, how our problems will be resolved as, as right. human people and as American people. What is salvation? What is and- salvation, all that. And I think it, 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 to me, the those sort of things, when Christianity was attached to the events on Wednesday, to me, those what's so troubling about it is it seems that a lot of hope and a lot of uh, soteriology and eschatology are being placed in in
0: one political leader. And I think that's right. very short-sighted. And it's one political leader, but it's also a particular vision of what it means to be Christian and a particular vision of what it means to be American. And I think that it, when I say particular, I, I don't necessarily mean unified, yeah. but it's, you know, it's from a, from a particular vantage point that I, that Yeah. Based on the historic witness of the global church and based on scripture, I can't find any justification for it. And at the same time, one of the things that I think is really important, our last guest on the podcast, our last guest was Dale Mayfield. And she said, as, as these things were happening, one of the things that she commented about was that these are my people. Right. And I think it's really important to not say, well, those people, you know, because they have a flawed eschatology or a flawed soteriology, they must not be Christians. I suspect that many of them are. Oh, yeah. Right. And so to to say, no, those aren't my people is also problematic. It does mean we have some work to do among our people. Peter followed Jesus and Jesus had to
1: tell him to put away the sword, you know, in some right. ways what I'm seeing, I mean, you see this diverse group of followers of Jesus who even within Jesus's own lifetime, who were so deeply divergent on the way Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And you see Peter's expression of it, you know, in the garden when he's really, when he literally pulls the sword out and cuts off the high priest servant's ear. Um, You see, I have to imagine that there are other expressions of it as, well and Simon the zealot you know and and maybe different than 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 who knows than than John or James or or any of right. those for that matter it, it, it's a tricky scenario because i, I don't I don't at all want to put my stamp of approval on the way that Christianity has been interlinked with certain political ideologies and what it means to be American in, in our country at the same time um, I understand that who the church is <laughs> Within America and globally is extremely complex mm-hmm. and and i don't I don't know I don't really feel like I should be in a spot to to question a person's faith, but I do think that it is healthy within the church. To try to call out the things that we see are unhealthy patterns of thinking within those who right. want to associate with Jesus,
0: we have a responsibility to we have do that. Responsibility right? yeah. about that, and, and
1: I, don't, I don't, and I'm not really talking about those who 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 have no desire to affiliate with Jesus. I mean, th- there's there's all sorts of things we can ask about, you know, their ideologies politically and whatnot. But mm-hmm. but I'm it is the folks who showed up at the Capitol who maybe were motivated by their faith that I would. I don't know, I'm I'm troubled by some of those motivations because it seems some of those underlying theologies are maybe misguided, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or or they
0: are misguided. We'll be back in a moment with Marcus Dipsilas. Our conversation with Marcus was recorded just before Christmas, but it turns out there are some really important themes for today. A quick reminder that you can find bonus content and contribute to the podcast at patreon.com slash rooms. So I am, I, I want to say I'm super excited, but I usually say I'm super excited. And I think I'm more than excited to have uh, with us today, Marcus Dipsilas, who I've known since 2013, I guess it has been, it's been a minute. So Marcus is an aspiring interculturalist of Chinese, Punjabi, and Pakistani Malay descent. He's Malaysian by nationality. And after he graduated uh, in the US in 2015, Marcus moved back to Southeast Asia and went on a four-year nomadic journey, immersing himself in numerous Christian communities in Asia, America, and Europe, listening and retelling the stories of international workers and local believers alike. It was really fun, Marcus, to see you doing that. Uh, in 2018, he obtained a graduate diploma in international development from the London School of Economics. And he works as a creative, telling stories through videography, photography, and writing. He's the founder of the Dips Collective, which is a nonprofit focused on refugee advocacy. Uh, Marcus, thanks for being with us today. What's What's something else we should know about you?
2: Well, oh, a light one, maybe. I like food. <laughs> but not just like stuff my face with food, although I do mm-hmm. that too. Um, but like when I I think it's because of the competitiveness that I have or the drive to want to always look for the best thing.
1: Um, So maybe we could start by by asking you kind of the question we like to ask most of our guests to start, which is, do you drink coffee? You know, this is and Rooms getting coffee. Do you drink coffee? And if so, what's the best cup of coffee you've ever had.
2: It'd be sacrilegious if I said no, right?
0: The only people who have to get coffee are us, so, you know.
2: Yeah, so I can tell you the worst cup I ever had was a three-in-one mix, and that's very popular mm. outside of the U.S.
0: Can I just say real quick, when I discovered the three-in-one mix, it was in Mali, and I was like, this is amazing. I, yeah. well, no,
2: I don't understand. What is the mix? What is the three and one? Yeah, it's it's three and one. It's one part coffee, two parts sugar. This one <laughs> that sounds like a lot you of coffee
1: I used to drink. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah,
2: it's kind of like like just a weird espresso powder that's not really espresso powder. It's probably flavored powder in some mm. way, coffee flavored, coffee flavored creamer. I'm guessing you're
0: talking, you're talking about like the dry packets, right? Yeah,
2: the dry packets. Yeah, mm. and then yeah. they have like powdered creamer and then sugar, and you just pour it into hot water. Yeah. It, in, yep. in a cup and then you drink it um i would say the best cup of coffee that i've had was in london i was on my way to oxford so i could propose and so i had about six hours between arriving in england and getting on a train and heading to oxford um when lauren was there for a term doing a study abroad and so i stopped by borough market because i needed some liquid courage and i thought i'd find it in june but i found <laughs> it in
1: coffee
0: uh, that's great okay so you're from Malaysia you live there with your wife now for our listeners who are unfamiliar with Malaysia could you describe it
2: mm, it's a tropical country it's not quite on the equator but it's close we get a lot of rain and also it's very humid huh. and uh, and warm yeah so the the average temperature is 80s 90s hmm. um, all the time there's a lot of jungle mm-hmm. we go to an island a lot this uh, this island Penang island it's it's kind of like a, a commercial hub um, and so to get Get there we go through paddy fields the terrain that we get to see is paddy fields jungle and the sea mm. so we drive over there's a, a 10 mile long bridge that connects the mainland to the island
1: yeah i thought i saw that it was called georgetown at one point is that right or still is georgetown is is the capital the city
2: of administration is called georgetown name after name for king george
0: so in terms of history what what are some of the main notes of history for malaysia
2: in the 1600s, the Portuguese came to Malaysia. They, they colonized the Straits the spice trade and where that went through in Asia goes through the Straits of Malacca and then in the 1800s the British came with the East India Company and so they started taking over ports you know they they founded Singapore Mm -hmm. uh, as in they established Singapore as a port for England and then they contracted out these mines because Malaysia is rich with tin ore and silver so they contracted out these mines Mm -hmm. to Chinese merchants uh, who then brought in Mm -hmm. the clans that that followed along from the region of southern China. And then they also brought in Indian slaves, essentially, but they worked on plantations. So Malaysia kind of became this hub in Asia where Mm -hmm. in other places, Britain went in and really imposed their culture uh, in Malaysia to a degree the Malay people had the autonomy for religious and cultural and social uh, in that sense that autonomy and so we have all these marks of colonization and stuff behind I mean we have Catholic mission schools that are still around, um, we have orphanages that were, were started by Protestants and Catholics and Anglicans uh, alike and, and those are still around yeah so so it's kind of a mishmash it kind of became a hub um, for Asia, I mean, without going into kind of the how the British colonized Malaysia, like that was really how the culture began to form.
1: So historically speaking, where is Malaysia at in terms of colonization? I assume that it has ended to some extent, but what's the situation there? Yeah,
2: so I guess if if you're talking about post-colonialism, right? Um, I would say like tangibly it's ended, but in the minds of people, it hasn't. But I think when it ended was 1957 was when Malaysia gained independence
0: remember when you were doing your studies and we were talking about post-colonialism at some point, you kind of like having this realization like, Oh, this is still very much part of me, the colonial experience. And,
1: and, and for our listeners who don't know the term post-colonial, what, what, what is that exactly? And, and explain maybe some of what Jones is, is talking about here in terms of that realization you came to.
2: So post-colonialism, I think it's, it's two things. I think one is uh, it's kind of like a philosophy mm-hmm. for one. It's a, it's a way of thinking of people trying to make sense of what happened for the better part of four to 500 years.
0: Yeah. Which is interesting. Just maybe a, a clarification. Cause sometimes I, I have students who start to study post-colonialism and they'll say, well, I don't agree with post-colonialism. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they say, well, I think post-colonialism post-colon- still has effects on people. It's yeah. like, well, yeah, that's the whole point of post-colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's,
2: it's what we're, it's what we're looking at. I think a lot of it also came about because of post-modernism, right? There's this unlocking of the voices. Mm-hmm. There's this looking back at modernism modernism. modernism and saying, hey, you thought that everything could be figured out and and codified and no, there are these human experiences that kind of um, go against the grain of that. And so Mm -hmm. um, for me, post-colonialism is a lived experience. It's an angst that I feel constantly. It's something I have to contend with a lot, especially through a gospel lens, because it's so easy to hate all white people. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to hate. The skin color that oppressed my ancestors, and mm-hmm. recent studies that have talked about how trauma is written into genetic code, and it lasts for about four generations, and only after the four generations can you really try to mm. work it out. Mm. And my parents lived through colonization, at least till their teens. My mom actually had a British national birth certificate because mm. Borneo was under British—they um, um, call it a, a protectorate. But um, yeah, this idea of that white man's burden of bringing civilization. Mm-hmm. to me it's very real in the field of, of missions i personally don't think that the gospel has really penetrated the heart of this nation because i'm still seeing a lot of outsider kind of perspectives when it comes to to following jesus like i mean we do church exactly the, almost exactly the same way that you would walk into a church on sunday well Pre-COVID, right? You could walk into a shirts sure. and Sunday.
0: So then part of the post-colonial project for you is trying to wrestle with what of your faith is an authentic experience of the gospel as a culturally located person. And what of your faith has been mediated through this power structure of colonialism. And it sounds like part of what you're saying is the way that the gospel took root in some populations in Malaysia. It did so in a way that didn't necessarily empower people to Understand who is Jesus for themselves as much as it was kind of a continuation of this power differential. Is that right?
2: Well, so the efficacy of the gospel is proven in itself. The gospel works in spite and despite of our cultural baggage. Mm -hmm. You know that's why you can't go like, well, it's not working because no one's accepting Christ, or you can't say like, well, people are responding, so this must be working. Like, there's always a nuance there. It's a little gray. You know, it's working, but is this the way that it works best for for who you're you're meeting with? Right. Mm -hmm. So yes, I would say I would say that. That part of the gospel actually clicked. It's kind of like when you download an app. It's a really great app, save for a few bugs in the system. Like that's kind of what Christianity feels like at times here, where things are working great, and then you meet an impasse, and suddenly you're like, "How do we respond?" And and maybe for people who are more aware, they'd be like, "Well, the the things that we've learned biblically." we're realizing they're coming from a cultural lens that's different.
0: And then it sounds like you're saying there's some of those vestiges still in the Malaysian Christian experience. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So I think most of it is a cultural baggage that, that missionaries brought over maybe their own angst toward their own culture or, or their own reactions. So before I went to the U S all the missionaries that I kind of met, if they were American missionaries, they'd be like, Oh yeah, America is not a safe nation. Oh, America's on its way to hell. Like all these different comments. So I legit thought all the good Christians had left America. They were not really good Christians other than the few celebrity pastors that we listened to on tapes and, and saw on, on, on some of these Christian channels. It's this dire state. and then I got there, and I'm like, not so, you know, like this isn't the case here. Um, and and when legit, when I came to the U.S., I had in mind, I'm like, the Lord's sending me to be a missionary in the U.S. I'm gonna <laughs> save some of these people, like. And then I got there, and I'm like, they're not waiting for me to bring Jesus. And then I'm like, maybe they need to know that my people aren't waiting for
0: me to bring Jesus. To us <laughs>
1: So Marcus, I've heard that you've recently been working on a book project that's due out in February. Could you just give us a little quick overview of that project and what you've been learning?
2: Yeah. So I was commissioned by a local state government to write this legacy project. So they're really trying to honor the contributions of businessmen, specifically in the tech, manufacturing, and engineering sector. The goal is to inspire young entrepreneurs to take the risks, Mm. to get into startups, and um, just to really build an ecosystem of startups here in
0: Malaysia. And these are like really successful people you're talking with, right?
2: These are people whose companies are part of the Apple supply chain. They make the components or they test the equipment of 5G for telecommunication companies, uh, often from the us or or in europe so yeah these are people who are under the radar Mm -hmm. because they have really funny names people might never hear of them um, but their products are in our iphones in our laptops Uh, it's been really interesting to hear what Malaysians have contributed to the tech
0: scene yeah so the book really celebrates that then yes
2: the book celebrates that uh a contribution
0: I suppose sometimes when people think of Southeast Asia and you mentioned like you pass by the the rice paddies right like that's kind of we think often very agricultural but what you're telling us is that there's this really evolved economic engine and Penang in particular, is that right?
2: It's a paradox, yes, because poverty is still a thing here, right? I mean, poverty is a thing everywhere, but definitely there are contributions to the global economy or even discoveries in science and discoveries in tech that have originated from this peninsula um, that's not really known by many people, you know, the Orient, The exotic orient as it is kind of visualized or or the perception in people's mind is that um you know we're all fishing villages and just serene vacation spots but there is a bustling community of innovators and inventors and 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 tech here in malaysia
0: yeah well and artists too right in penang Mm -hmm. yeah so this was commissioned by local government is that right
2: Yeah. So it's a state government. So I mean, it's it's a, it's a two in one kind of project. What they're hoping to do is, is to really boost the robustness of an ecosystem that will really support new startups. Um, 85% of jobs that are going to be considered essential in the year 2030 do not exist right now.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's something.
2: And so the government here where, where education is really a path that's charted or supported by the government, there is a responsibility of the government to chart that path for kindergartners right now, right? Or middle schoolers right now Mm -hmm. who will be in college. And so that's where the move is to trying to digitize and trying to bring about. Um, it's called the fourth industrial revolution. It's actually quite a common term. Um, so moving from just mechanical and Electrical and electronics to AI, mm. to automation. And so there's this idea of digitizing industry that will meet this fourth industrial revolution and kind of bring Malaysia into the next stage of progress.
0: And yet, in some ways, part of what your book is doing is looking at this reality that Malaysia is already there in some ways, right?
2: Yeah, not maybe not at the fourth industrial revolution, but that we have the, the framework And the inspiring stories. Hmm. I mean, so many of the people that I'm talking to, they came from utter poverty. How about that? And the idea of the self-made man, there's a myth to that, but there's also truth to that. All the things we build stand on the the accomplishments of the past, but also some people do come from nothing and they make something.
0: And then you get to sit in their offices and listen to these millionaires talking about their stories and
2: i mean people usually when they say like i'm so humbled it kind of like sounds like
0: (laughs) (laughs) like 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 humble brag
2: like a a humble brag but i really am so humbled that i get to do this you know most of these successful men they have never told their stories to anyone Mm. and so i'm the first person they're sharing it to i get to listen to it i get to kind of be an avenue for them. I mean, when we end some of these interviews, some of them will thank me because they got to reflect all the, all the key parts of their journey. And some of them end up in tears, like they'll be crying and they'll be apologizing. And I'm like, Hey man, emotions are good. Mm. Just, you know, and, and, and it's out of gratitude, right? Cause most of them, like they, they see that there were things bigger than themselves that pushed them in a direction or, or led them on this course. And so I get to retell these stories like that to me is phenomenal. I recently found a term that I really like that I, I, I would like to see myself or define my ministry that way. And the term is griot. It's a French word, but it really originates from West Africa. And griot is a person within the community who is a repository of stories. So essentially, they are the library, the walking, living library. They contain and hold all these stories of people. And then when people forget who they are, it's the griot's role to remind them, this is who we are. This is where we came from. These are the stories that made us. These stories that I get to tell, I treat them with such reverence because they're not my stories. They're not of me, it's someone else's story. And something so beautiful about listening to stories and retelling them. And I've done it in the faith community and now I get to do it in the secular community.
0: So one of the things that I'm curious about Marcus is, so you're Christian, right? But Malaysia is a majority Muslim country. And I think, uh, you know, something we were talking about with uh, DL Mayfield uh, a couple of weeks ago was this thing of like learning from believers who are not used to having Christianity from a place of power, uh, which is kind of how we imagine Christianity often uh, in the US. But what's that like being a Christian in a Muslim majority country?
2: So I'll, I'll give you some context. Um, so Christians make up about 8% of the Malaysian population. Um, so are about 2.6 million Christians out of a total population of 31 million. Gotcha. So generally, I'd say that the attitudes that I was brought up with um, as a result of being part of the Christian minority, especially concerning this idea of the kingdom of God, it's less focused on establishing a christian government in my country and definitely more about an eternal kingdom that is coming
0: so so it's more of kind of this long term view or or uh, it, like a different eschatological view or like mm. yeah what does that mean
2: so i think because in a colonized context when christianity came um, it was sold to us as not being political there were constructs that were put in to say yeah you might be slaves or servants or you might be colonized under you know a certain race or something right now but the gospel meets you mm-hmm. where you're at and this kingdom that we're talking about is is a heavenly kingdom it's going to come one day it's not for right now. And so I think that kind of has stayed within the general mindset of Christians um, in minority contexts that the end goal is not about establishing a kingdom here, but it's more about what is to come. Um, That's not to say that there aren't any Malaysian Christians who want the church to
1: be in power politically. So. Is it true then that there isn't a lot of tension between Christians and Muslims within Malaysia, or is that? Do you think that that's it's more complicated than that?
2: It is certainly more complicated than that. Um... I think the tension comes from the fear of being threatened, and I see a lot of similarities actually between Malaysian Muslims and American conservative Christians because they're both the majority in their context, and so the same vying for power. Um, I see that there, so the hmm. the tension comes from um, whenever you know uh, um, religious authorities feel like there's a threat to the faith, the majority faith, especially here, um, and. and And what that has looked like has been certain limitations or inconveniences, I would would describe them as, um, because they vary from state to state. Um, But there have been enforced disappearances of pastors who were evangelizing Mm -hmm. to Malay Muslims, which is illegal in Malaysia to evangelize to a Muslim. Um, And Islam, as you know, treats apostasy very seriously. So two pastors in in particular, um, Pastor Raymond Cole and Pastor Joshua Hilmi, um, who are known for the outreach quite publicly to Malay Muslims. They've been missing since
0: 2017. Wow. So, so on the one hand, you have a, a f- quite a bit of freedom to exercise faith, mm-hmm. right? And then on the mm-hmm. other hand, there are also these, uh, I mean, I mean that would, be, that would fit, you know, if we talk about the persecuted church, you'd say, yeah, this is also that. It's, that's really complicated
2: yeah it's it's it is quite complex i t- i think too for the psyche of the malaysian church mm. because there is freedom of religion uh, um guaranteed for um non-ethnically malay people mm. but at the same time mm. it's kind of this don't poke the bear you know we're letting you have this freedom be grateful and mm. and don't stir up anything don't
0: don't provoke anything yeah, that's so interesting I'm curious. One of the things we've talked about in the last couple episodes on the podcast is this question of Christian nationalism. One of the things that seems to be a big fear here is the idea of the church losing political power. And I think there's this question of can the church even survive if it doesn't have political power? Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: So personally, I do think that being in the position of a minority, I think that can teach the church valuable lessons, especially in meekness and humility. Mm -hmm. The word meekness isn't this idea of a cowering person who's afraid. Like meekness is having authority, but not being compulsive to use it. We certainly don't need political engines to to propagate church. In fact, I think a lot of times when when we rely on the political machine to, to help us that cause becomes tainted. Like there's a political interest there that gets introduced into the church DNA, which to me, I think is dangerous. So um, I had a friend from Singapore recently share some of his writings on God's call for us to lose and how sometimes God does call us to lay down our rights and lose, which is essentially the example of Christ, is mm. it not? Like he emptied himself, he chose to humble himself. He came in our form. And so I think that there's a very real, tangible experience that minority Christians have with the meekness of Christ incarnate.
0: Mm. I Justin, do you remember I can't remember hearing a sermon or a message or anything where losing like calling us to lose i can see it like philippians too, right but i this is unfamiliar to me is is it to you
1: well and the idea of meekness i think is just not anything ever emphasized theologically even though jesus clearly emphasized it mm-hmm. in the sermon on the mount mm-hmm. but you know I, and i've been reflecting i think at, you know in some classes at crown for a little while on on the beatitudes and especially on the way that you know jesus thinks people are blessed and how our stark contrast that is with what we think (laughs) constitutes blessings in the Western world. So when you're talking about this emphasis of this sense of meekness and all that, I mean, you're, you're you're talking about things that I think are very potent in the scriptures, but that are really quite foreign. I think in the Western world, Uh, I feel like in the American context with like Christian nationalism, it's not so much lamenting the lack of power among Christians. It's really probably more so lamenting the the loss of power mm-hmm. you know so there's this idea that we we had power now we don't have it anymore and we need to recapture it but the situation you're describing um for christians in malaysia among muslim majority it, it sounds to me and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong here that that there's maybe not that same sense of vying for power politically among christians in malaysia is that true or, or am i wrong
2: well for 200 years the british were in power and they were. <laughs> nominally Christian (laughs) at least and missionaries at best, right? So it's not like Christians never had power in Asia or in Malaysia. It was just Mm. never the local Christians. Um, Mm. In 2018, we actually had the first switch of government and the church lobbied a lot for that. There was a lot of corruption. So Christians rallied around this coalition that promised to eradicate uh, corruption, to really deal with the issues, to bring this nation on track. The Malaysian church hitched itself to this coalition and that was used as a political tool to rile up Muslims To kind of retake the government And and there was a coup Political coup that happened in February this year Right before um, The coronavirus situation got really bad In Malaysia and it hasn't been resolved Since so so we've we've seen That result of the You know I mean nationalism exists In in every culture I think Mm. maybe For America it looks a little different Because it's most closely Related to white supremacy Mm -hmm. It wasn't that way here it was more a cause of justice and against corruption but the results were kind of similar because some christians are mourning the loss of power i mean it was only two years right the, the uh, 2018 mm. and 2020
0: but that little taste of uh yeah of power
2: because we were like we're free it's a new malaysia and then it's like actually it's same old same old mm.
1: We've, we've talked on our podcast some now uh, about the ways within Christianity and Christian theology can vary by context um, now you you went to college in the US this is where all of our paths sort of intersected and crossed here um you know as, as you think about Christianity in the US and Christianity in your context in Malaysia what, what are some of the similarities and differences that you see and also just thinking about how you and your American wife have experienced Christianity differently Um and thinking about, you know, where you're from.
2: That is a very relevant question, especially in this election cycle. I had that conversation with Lauren, my wife, uh, a couple nights ago, Kind of just trying to figure out, like, what's really different? Like, how are we different, uh, Justin? I don't know if, if you're on Facebook at all. Um, we're not friends on mm. Facebook.
1: I'm not on Facebook. That's <laughs> <how>. <laughs> we would be friends, I think, but I'm not on Facebook. So. <laughs> yeah.
2: But I do post quite a a lot on American hmm. politics and, and kind of what's going on in the U.S. So I get a lot of queries of people like why do you feel the need to talk about America? You're not American um, which previously I didn't have an American wife so I could, I, I could see the point on you but now I'm like well I have a wife who's American so by association you know, I do have some stake in this um, and so we're trying to figure out like why I feel the need to address some of these things and I think it boiled down to this idea of the connectedness that i share through the holy spirit with brothers Mm. and sisters in the u.s Um, even though i'm not american but when the church in the u.s and christians within the church in the u.s um, say something or do something that damages the witness of christ in my circle of friends or in in a global context um I am involved and I
0: am included. So, so this is super interesting because you so sometimes if you're posting politically, we in the U.S. are likely to interpret you're, you're posting on American politics. and We're like, oh, I see talking about politics. But it sounds like what you're saying is like, no, actually, I'm talking about faith. Yes. Is that right?
2: Yeah. My posts usually have a have a challenge or a call to action or a reminder for believers because I'm not just posting into the oblivion. I mean, I do Mm -hmm. have people that I want to talk to and reach at this point. It's most of my Crown friends. Um, I mean, 80 percent of of my friends on Facebook who are um, who are American are from Crown. And so sometimes when I see certain things that I find concerning because I feel like it might damage the witness of the church, you know, I will point it out, I will say something about it. Um, But the heart of it really comes from this place of. I grieve, um, along or I grieve with, or I'm grieved in the process. There's a lot of grieving really, <laughs> mm. but this sense of the connectedness. So for instance, uh, and, and this was contrasted with, you know, I was talking with Lauren and she said, well, when somebody else of the same faith does something, I look at it as they are separate from me.
0: Oh, Interesting
2: they are doing this. I am not doing this. And then my response is, but we don't get to do that. No matter how much I might dislike someone, right? No matter how much I might dislike a fellow believer, we both call Jesus Lord. And therefore, there is, you know, we are in the same family. I can't disown you every time I don't like something you've said or done.
1: So you could be describing just sort of differences in perspective between you and your wife, but you could also be highlighting in some ways the differences between how American Christians think and Malaysian Christians think, right? So you're talking about her th- being able to separate herself from another Christian who's saying things that maybe she doesn't agree with, where you're kind of like, "No, we're we have a stake in the game here altogether." Do you think that is is a result of differences, you know, in culture? in terms of your Christian perspectives from your cultural frameworks or?
2: I think so, for sure. There's so the intercultural framework at play here is uh, individualism versus Mm -hmm. collectivism. Definitely because I grew up in a a collectivist culture, I tend to have more us kind of perspectives.
0: I wonder if it's worth just defining the collectivism piece real quick, because I know sometimes when I talk with Americans about individualism and collectivism, what they hear are economic terms, which is not what you're talking about. This is a question of identity, right?
1: Yeah.
2: So the expression of identity is found within the group. It's found in relationship. It's kind of this idea of finding meaning in life. It's not that the group dictates to you what meaning is. It's finding meaning together. And so that's why shame is such a big thing in this culture because shame derails that, uh, derails the whole group from finding meaning. One of the main philosophies that, that, is prevalent throughout Southeast Asia is Confucianism. Confucius was a, a Chinese officer in, in the king's court, and he wrote some of these principles of the Chinese understanding of what it meant to be human. And it talks about a very key thing that exists in most Asian cultures, and that is filial piety. So it has to do with family, this understanding of family and family isn't just a nuclear family. Family extends to your uncles, your aunties, your your grandparents.
0: So then if you're if you are theologizing or if you're looking at practicing Christianity mm-hmm. and you're looking at the question of who is us the foundational frameworks that you have for that would be different than somebody coming from a Western perspective that is influenced maybe more by Plato than by Confucius. Like the, I, it, it's easy for me to say, well, I need to practice uh, holiness myself. And I'm thinking about me as an individual, whereas it sounds like that's a, your starting place is so different than my starting place that the conclusions are different. mm
2: mm-hmm. um... Yeah, I mean, sometimes the conclusions are similar. We get there different sure. ways, right? Um, but I think the main process in that sense of like the, I, the 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 connection I feel with God comes from this place of connecting with others. You know, I'd even go as far to say, um, I used to do quiet time religiously i really held that time so closely um, and i felt super close with the lord and also in uh, in in sexual purity like i felt so close to jesus and i think that has evolved a little bit for me because now the times that i feel the closest to god is when i'm fellowshipping with a refugee Or when I'm raising funds, you know, I'm doing an act of justice. So for me, that's kind of shifted a little bit in what would it look like to to have a healthy relationship with the Lord and others that wasn't centered around me. And again, like that's the... That's a Bonhoeffer piece. I think Bonhoeffer was secretly Asian inside, (laughs) like that. Turning your heart outwards, you know, to others, like like the other Mm -hmm. is is the one that you're here Mm -hmm. for Christ for the other. Like I I listened to that episode and I it clicked. It just it really like that's that's my Mm -hmm. theology.
1: So this this idea of holiness that you've been talking about here is very rooted in the concept of like justice and not just the sense of like personal right and wrong, um, but really how we act towards others too. Uh, Your big answer, I think, to the question we asked then about differences between Christianity in America and Christianity in Malaysia is is cutting at the core of not just like, okay, some Christians do this in Malaysia and other Christians do this in America or the West. I mean, you're talking about fundamentally different ways of completely conceiving of God and of the world, but still somehow maintaining um, like some a similar Christian identity, even though at the very core, there's some very different ways of thinking and different ways of even conceiving of these theological questions. So I, don't, I really appreciate that because you take it beyond just kind of yeah. the the nitty gritty, well, we do things this way ritually and Americans do it this way or something, but, but getting to some of the roots of where different perspectives from within different Christian communities are kind of coming into play here. And you mentioned just this emphasis, even within yourself, of looking for reconciliation with others. Whereas it seems like a lot of Americans first thought would likely be not Am I wrong with others? It would be: Have I sinned internally? Me and God, you know. So, have I thought a lustful thought? Have I been angry? You know, something like that. Now, you do highlight though that that that's not something that you you don't think about. You think about that too. So, what you're talking about here in a collective understanding of your faith doesn't dismiss some of the things that maybe even someone in the West might emphasize. But but often folks in the West might dismiss the collective aspects of our faith. I just wanted to point out there's not really a question here, more of just a observation of a, I'm appreciative of the way that you highlighted some of some of the differences and some of the ways that you maybe gravitate towards thinking about those things in ways that people in the West maybe don't. Um but you you also kind of move then into talking about at the core, you, you, you've you gone even away from just asking questions about your own personal holiness, per se, and started to ask questions about serving others and being for others. Um, and you mentioned even work with refugees, right? You, you want to maybe explain to us just a, a little bit more about, I mean, have you and Lauren been working with, with refugees?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I started, um, my involvement with refugees really began as a single man, as a bachelor back in 2016. um, I had traveled to Turkey, and I had built some relationships there with uh, some Syrian refugees who were living close to the Syrian border. So I've maintained the connection with the Syrian refugees and I kind of do like awareness and and fundraising for various needs, Um, but an opportunity presented itself last January for Lauren and myself to help a Syrian refugee escape from Syria. And it so happened that Malaysia was not a list of countries that he could travel to without applying for a visa. And so we were there to receive him. I actually traveled four hours to the airport to, to meet him. Um, and I had to sign some legal forms as his guarantor, kind of tying him to myself.
0: And that's, that's a big deal.
2: That is a really big deal, I think, uh, especially since, you know, the ministry that I would like to do, I'd like to remain <laughs> not on anyone's <laughs> <words>. <laughs> So yeah, it was tough. It was, it was really this, uh, it was, it was really challenging for me too. I think the entire time he lived with us for six months. So it was very challenging to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, we were married for less than a year at
1: that point. Just remembering my first year of marriage. I mean, I was, I was 30, 31 years old when I got married, so I wasn't super young, but you know, that first year of marriage is always challenging in and of itself. But then, you know, Mm -hmm. um, having the opportunity to show hospitality and invite, by someone into your home who is experiencing some uh, some rough circumstances, you know, I could see how that could be enriching in a lot of ways, but I could see how it could also be challenging within your first year of marriage.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember in, in some of the questions in ethics class at Crown started to come back because it's like, he's 25 <laughs> years old. He's a stranger. I've never met him. He he says he's a new believer. He wants to leave his country because there's a war going on. What do I do? Like, do I bring him to my house? And we had people telling us like, well, he could like do something to Lauren. Like he could run away with your stuff. Like, what are you going to do about it? And I think, yeah, inviting a stranger who was hurting and had experienced so much trauma into our Mm -hmm. home was a very painful, but necessary thing for us. Mm -hmm. And, And he was a new believer and we were not equipped at all to help him process his pain you know at, at this point platitudes don't work it's it's so easy to say trust god or have faith in jesus right. like, those words come so easily and, and and then to model that well for someone who has seen war for the past 10 years um how are we supposed to disciple him
0: well i mean it, it, it's not like he just had the trauma that had occurred then there was still stuff going on in his life in his life right
2: mm-hmm. yeah yeah well his family was still back in syria his uh Girlfriend was still back in Syria. And you know, we would wake up in the morning and he would still be sleeping. And he would wake up at two and be like, Why did you sleep so late? And then he'd go, Well, I was talking to my girlfriend because they were bombing the city that she lives in. And I we didn't want to not be able to spend her last moments together. And then we'd <sighs> be like, okay, you can stay up asleep, Just do what you need. We're here to help you. But it was this back and forth of like, you know, I mean, we have our idea of what it means to be productive. And then you meet someone who's utterly just pushed down and has been living this life that is so demoralizing. Like, how do you disciple that? How do you, you know, teach, walk out that that model, that life to, of following Jesus? And so there were certainly moments of frustration from from both sides. Like we would get frustrated at him. He would also get frustrated at us. Mm-hmm. Um but, but it's been, it's been a year um, since he's been in Malaysia. By God's
0: grace, he's still here. When, when you say still here, you're saying still in the country.
2: He's still in the country. He's not living with us anymore. So he moved to a, a, a refugee community about mm. uh, four months, five months ago. Uh, and, and that has been very helpful for his mentality and, and his whole being. So we see him now and we see the progress that he has made and, and this new confidence in his identity and his English has improved. He knows the public transportation more than I do. Um, he's in a different city. So we visit him when we can. And you know, this new identity, like it doesn't erase the pain Mm -hmm. or trauma he went through. It doesn't make everything just go away, But, but we see God redeeming him and healing him day by day. And I think that's the model for refugee work, mm-hmm. if if I were to contribute anything to this field is that above all else, the ministry of presence in a place of suffering, that is so needful.
0: I think one of the things I really appreciated you skyped into one of my classes and it was a class about refugees and you were talking about this experience you and Lauren were. And I think one of the things I really appreciated about it is how you de-romanticized it uh, for us a little bit. Cause I think sometimes, you know, it just seems like, Oh, you know, well that, that would be amazing, you know, and I could be so good at that. And I think for you to just say, my memory is you came into the class and you were just like, guys, this is, really hard
2: yeah the lord kind of the lord challenged my nobility mm. <laughs> in these last few months i think we, we kind of have that idea of ourselves that charitable noble like this is who i am and this is what i'm going to do for the world at least most of us do and then you're met with this guy who you know uh slams the <laughs> fridge door or Talks really loudly on the phone in Arabic. And and then you're like, can you like the Like, the phones? <laughs> like, it's the little things. It's always the little things. So it was a very unromantic process, which, you know, we do it again. Hmm.
0: So I'm curious. We, I mean, we've talked about a whole bunch of things, but from where you're sitting, today what would you call the church to whether that's the american church the malaysian church the global church like what what would you call followers of jesus to
2: mm. i think i'd call the followers of jesus to prayer mm. you know it, to me it seems like we don't pray enough and i'm not talking about prayer requests or or even quiet time, you know, I'm not talking about those kinds of prayer time. I'm really talking about being in the place of prayer to seek God, to seek his will, to know him, you know, all this Christian nationalism stuff. It's, it's pretty bad. Hermeneutics. If you ask me, you know, we think it's God's will that he wants Christians in charge. But really, the call of Christ is to come and die, Mm. right? It is a call to lay down our rights, our earthly rights, and and die spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. You know, and we can't figure it out without prayer, and we certainly can't sustain it without prayer. You know, I I believe that most Christians want to know the heart of God. I've been watching some of these videos of some of these Christian nationalist rallies, and, and they will pray like, God, we want to know your plan. Christians want to know his heart. People want to know God's heart but we're not doing it in prayer. And I also believe that a significant portion of God's heart is revealed in suffering, real suffering. Our prayer time needs to look like meeting the tragedy of reality head on. And and Jones, you said something in a class at Crown, the gist of which has stuck with me. And I paraphrase, you said, if we encounter suffering on our own terms, we will only find despair. Hmm. But if we will meet suffering on God's terms, we will find him because he was in the midst of the suffering all along. Mm-hmm. You know, God is found near the brokenhearted, near the contrite. Jesus said the meek will inherit the kingdom of God. Like, why would we aspire to be anything else? Mm. And so, you know, in our prayer, I, I think it's really important to practice the discipline of lament. And you've talked about this in the, you know, the previous episode, especially um, with D.L. Mayfield. And I refer to the model of the discipline of lament that Chris Rice and Emmanuel Katangole prescribe in their book, Reconciling All mm-hmm. Things. Mm-hmm. And it's unlearning speed, unlearning distance, and unlearning innocence. So we need to slow down. We need to unlearn speed, right? We need, to, we need to slow down. We need to take a breather. And we need to stop seeing things through the lens of us versus them, you know, here versus there, that, that distance that we put between humans. And then we need to start to realize the role that we play as part of the problem. we need to unlearn our innocence in all of this and and a beautiful hope emerges because we will find out that Jesus can still use us to be part of the solution
0: and it it sounds like you're saying too that as we're unlearning speed like so with that 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 idea that we're that we can fix it quickly that we can fix it and that we can fix it mm-hmm. quickly. Right. Um, mm-hmm. the part of that, then if we, if we sit in the opposite of speed, right. In this mm-hmm. slow open space, that there is a mm-hmm. place then to meet Jesus there that maybe we don't even look for when we're trying to solve the problem too quickly. Is that, is that right?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, everything's on demand nowadays, right? You know, video on demand, um, instant noodles, instant coffee, instant <laughs> 3D printing. I, I watch the video, you can print a building in a week. You know, we, we're, we're looking at optimization and, and efficiency, and that's not, that's not the gospel,
0: mm.
2: right? I have a missionary friend who once told me if God's mission was purely to just... Uh, have everyone go to heaven to save everyone in that sense, he wouldn't use humans. That is the most inefficient model, you know? Um, (laughs) But obviously he desires something more, you know, he desires us and he wants us to want it too, I guess. And so, yeah, you're right. Like this, this slowing down gives us a perspective that we would never have had before. Mm -hmm. An African-American friend of mine posted Not too long ago on Facebook, and I just want to read what she wrote. She says, the overall outcry of Black people in America has not been a charge against God, but against a system that has not upheld his values. In all this, we know where our help comes from, and we've relied on him through the ages. We walk with a sober awareness that this world is not our home, that our hope is in heaven and with God. It's honestly a miracle that so many black people still maintain such a steadfast faith in spite of what we have had to endure throughout the centuries. I say with great certainty that not if, but when the waves of persecution wash upon the shores of America, the black church will be who white Christians will turn to, to learn Hmm. true endurance, perseverance, and reliance on God alone. While they are outliers of which are missionaries, revolutionaries, and spiritual trailblazers, modern white Christians have not corporately known what it is to suffer under a system that does not innately benefit them. May growth in humility, compassion, and godly pursuit of justice ensue. I pray for the endurance and perseverance of the saints. That's, that's so powerful. And, and I want to encourage my white Christian friends to start this process of learning from their brothers and sisters from a minority context. You know, we have something to teach you mm-hmm. and we are willing to help you. But humble yourselves, sit down and pay attention.
0: I really appreciate you being with us uh today marcus for this conversation
2: thanks for having me appreciate what you do jones and
1: you as well justin
0: yeah thanks marcus we appreciate it Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Our theme music is by Josiah Enns. The primary edit of today's episode was by Marcus Dipsilas. Reed Peters is a recognized patron of the show. Remember to find us at profsandrooms.com. And we hope you can join us for coffee again next time.